physical bank. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, why would you do that in the age of fintech? I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. Cheryl. That's going to that's gonna be a rare museum trip, right? Very soon. <laughs> I, I need to draw some money, but the, 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 the ATM could only take a certain amount. So mine is like a few times above the amount. So I need to virtually go, go, physically go into a bank. And then when I went into the bank, uh, an old gentleman won my card. I, I, I was asking him, why do you need my card? Okay, so, so he took my card and sold it into something and gave me a queue number. And then, and then something that looks like an a, a iPad like 30 years ago. Ask me to key how much I need to draw and then whatever thing. And then can you please hold on to this and wait for your turn? I'm like, why do I need to deal with you in the first place? <laughs> but anyhow, I waited for like 15 minutes and then the girl, the girl called me and I had to bring this device to her. And then she asked me, okay, can you please key in your pin number on this device? And then, okay, wait a while. And then I waited again until she gave me the money and there's no receipt. I'm like, no receipt? I said no okay can you please update my passport so I need to update my passport to, to, to see what's going on in my bank so yeah that's a stupid Japanese bank system but so I'm what done. you're what you're saying is there's lots of opportunity for fintechs in Japan yes and lots of that's what you're saying for, for me six too. and lots of opportunity for me to <laughs> entrepreneurs are getting excited as soon as you say things like that oh that's God. what I love about entrepreneurship people look at these things and they kind of go ah I got that I got that and then they go for it so, uh, Richard Branson went into space, or did he? You know, uh, that, this... <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> or did, is it uh, eighty kilometers or a hundred kilometers? I know this is the, the, line? the fun <laughs> Jeff Bezos, uh, Richard Branson game of defining space, and um, and then Elon Musk is just laughing himself silly, although he's not riding his own rockets to the International Space Station. Uh, but in fairness, he is sending people to the International Space Station. Um, but I, I, yeah, people have mixed emotions about Virgin Galactic. Uh, but I guess it will serve its main function of space tourism or the, the feeling of being in space and looking down at the planet and having what appears to be a truly life-changing uh, experience. And... In, in perhaps a safer way than Blue Origin does, although Blue Origin is different in that I wondered if somebody can comment, if they're going to be able to do um, um, international travel much faster than because they're, if they can e properly exit into space and allow the Earth rotation and then come down in another controlled location, doing that kind of, you know, around the world travel in, you know, 40 minutes kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say that they, they're, they're going up high enough to facilitate that, which I think is, you know, Virgin Galactic's end game really after the tourism thing is is making those 12 hour intercontinental flights, bringing them down to one and a half hours. Right. And that's that is interesting. SpaceX has a good uh, if you if you do um, Googling on this, there's the tons of stuff, but SpaX has a good animation on this somewhere. About oh, that video from, is amazing. Yeah, going from Tokyo. I love their animations, actually. That's kind of how they visualize stuff. But uh, yeah, just going from, I think, New York to, to China, Shanghai. And then they have this idea of putting... Um, uh, so it kind of does this, goes out into space, goes across, comes down. But it goes comes down on sea. And then they've got this little train that goes out into the sea. And uh, yeah, you know, that, that could happen. And I, 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 I really hope that I can try something that out for international travel. 
uh, before I'm uh, before my life is up. It's quite good. Okay, it can happen, but obviously that the I mean this is, this is an obvious statement, but you know the system that Galactic have got, you can use existing runways, which is the you know that's the attractive thing of it. If, if they can get the system working, that they don't need uh, landing pads out at sea, away from potential crash areas and whatnot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, just modify existing airports to use this. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a question on this. Any concern about space debris, uh, especially as we take this up? We're talking about the environment here in the U.S. I mean, in the uh, on Earth, but what about up in orbit and everything like that? Um, I, don't know. I know there's, NASA there's and all of them have some stuff on that. So what's the solution to that? Any solution? At, at the height that Virgin Galactic went to, there's, there's nothing there um, because it's it's. Uh, so I mean, you you could see if you were if you were looking at the telemetry, for instance, as soon as the boosters Carl, cut off, the deceleration. There, there is something. There is something which um, Elon Musk has been referring to about his um, one of his ship, ships being able to gather up uh, debris. We have I'm read not too an, sure about it. We had an article about a week ago of yeah, there was, there was a solar, yeah. solar-powered glider that carries a net behind it that can grab up a space junk because space junk doesn't um, have any friction in the vacuum of space. So you can just get a big net and just scoop it all up and it, you can grab up endless amounts, you know, uh, just limited by the amount of mass you can carry in your net. It's not really a function of weight. I guess the difficult bit is controlling that it dr drops back into the ocean. And so now you've, you know, <laughs> got a bunch of space junk back in the ocean. And I guess as long as it's in the net, it's uh, retrievable. So uh, yeah, another, thing to, uh, another thing to take into calculus when you try to catch uh, space debris is that they usually have a very, very, very high velocity. And we're talking about 13 kilometers per second and such. And you need to match that speed perfectly, else you will make a tiny little hole in your net every time you try to catch something, because these guys go by faster than sound. All of them, you end up. Okay, so let's start with the big, big news. And then um, whatever time we have left, we will get into the more interesting tweets that everyone's sending in. And so the biggest news at the moment is that five former, Kase well, let me start here. Kaseya is the company that was, was at the heart of this big um, ransomware attack that uh, apparently there's been 1,500 businesses this month and, and counting. Um, and workers say Kaseya ignored warnings about key vulnerabilities yet again. We had a cybersecurity firm, I recall it was from Switzerland, who found some vulnerabilities in the days before this big ransomware attack. And they warned Kaseya, and Kaseya acknowledged it and apparently started working on it. And now five former Kaseya employees say they have warned the company about its lax security practices and were laid off or quit as Kaseya failed to address the issues. Ouch. And that opens them up for some big, big, lots of lawsuits, <laughs> especially being based in the U.S. where we love to sue, especially when you did something stupid that hurt my business economically. I'm not going to sue you and it's your fault. And now we've got the receipts if these five individuals are willing to testify in court cases 
And then you've got a big class action lawsuit on your hands of 1,500 businesses that can say you were warned about these vulnerabilities and you didn't fix them. And Tal- so you, you're Tal- responsible. Tal- yeah. If this was, uh, if, if legislation came out where this was changed to, act, to um, acts of terrorism, then doesn't that also open them up to, you know, some of the leaders of this uh, company, uh, um, management of this company being open to jail time, et cetera, regardless of the lawsuits? Jail time for no, I don't think there would be any potential jail time out of this. Okay. You, even if it was, even if this attack was considered an act of terrorism, they, the Kaseya is not itself the attacker. They're the building that was attacked if, metaphorically, and so you know they didn't have proper not paying attention to it, not not alerting anyone. Not... Right. Well, no, they didn't know they were going to be attacked. They just knew that there was, you know. They had left a key in a keyhole somewhere, yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, I just wanted to try and understand the legislature. Yeah. Okay. From an American perspective, they would be responsible for, potentially responsible for, they could be found guilty of being responsible for the damages that their customers, uh, you know, dealt with economically. If, If you could prove you were economically victimized, by this, which I imagine some of those 1,500 will easily be able to do. Um, yeah, you'll have to have proof of kind of injury, so to speak. But, but Tyler, yeah. there is also a credit system in uh, Europe. So for my companies and multiple of our top supplier got affected by Kassel. So I had a hell of a week last week and so far going on. And we have credit system, uh, like if your service is down and our servers are down and the trading is getting impacted across Europe, so they have to give us the company their contractual obligation to pay them. So you, they are going to pay a huge amount of money to all the suppliers who literally right. went. It it totally depends on what the agreement, the signed contract between Kaseya and their clients say, and that could vary based on countries. But generally, Kaseya's contracts would say all that everything's uh, relates back to U.S. laws, even if you're doing business in India and we are based in the U S and our, our service agreement is only applicable to U S laws and any disagreements will be dealt with. And this is where it gets really interesting is lately big apps. uh, For example, it used to be that companies only had dozens or maybe, you know, yeah, maybe a hundred or 200 customers and now we're getting into these apps like Kaseya that have thousands of customers. This is kind of new in, you know, in the past due to software that you can have a software as a service where, for example, Dropbox has millions of customers, paying customers, right? And so the question becomes, if there is a big problem due to some kind of security, imagine this was Dropbox and it would just replace Kaseya with Dropbox. Dropbox was warned by former employees. Dropbox did nothing. And now all of your stuff disappears, right? And we're talking millions of people. Now, what these companies like Dropbox and um, software as a service, uh, people making software for businesses that have thousands and tens of thousands and maybe even millions of customers, what they do is they're very, very careful to make sure they put in that the... If there is a problem that it's dealt with in arbitration in ways that would prevent class action lawsuits, 
So it forces you as an individual to come and resolve it out of the courts. You're, it's not going to you're not going to be able to go to court. You're not going to be able to sue them. Actually, you have to go through this third party arbitration system, which, oh, coincidentally, they as the software have gone to this same arbitrator, which is like a a, a fake court, if you want to think of it that way. And it's a, essentially a business that makes the decision of who's right and who's wrong. But who do you think they're going to be more favorable to the 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 company who they've worked with every day, you know, 10 times every day for five years or you as the user that they've never heard of. And you're just, you know, the 10th person today, every day, 365 days a year. And so you, you start to understand how the, the company starts to build a relationship with the because they picked that company as the company who does the arbitration and they have a good relationship with them and you don't. So it's not it's, it gets a little sticky. So um, second biggest headline, Twitter names resident grievance officer for India and publishes a compliance report. Meeting two key requirements under India's new IT rules. The question is, how long before this new officer is jailed for because they're responsible for everything that's happening in Twitter? And who would have been crazy enough to take such a role, knowing that? Or did this per, did Twitter make it clear to this new person that um, they are going to be physically responsible for any? possible crazy thing anyone in India says on their platform, because there's been no indication yet that Twitter has regained its platform protections. And uh, Vinay, here on stage, I thank you for sending in a photo from your TV. I take it you're in India, and you sent in a photo from your TV where it in India it said, breaking news, Twitter you know, adds a new grievance officer in India. So I guess this is making big news on uh, even on TV, mainstream TV journalists are covering this story. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Can, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. So absolutely, Tyler. In fact, there was some news this morning. I was just talking to someone in Delhi. I'm in Bangalore, by the way. And these were the preconditions for them to resubmit the paperwork to get their intermediary status. Um, so maybe he won't go to jail. But, uh, or maybe he will, but these are this and there's some more paperwork that they need to resubmit and then they will be considered to get that intermediary status protection that they lost. So just, so they're, uh, they, a couple of their sponsors and some of the big customers and I, and I know one of their biggest clients, Twitter's biggest clients, had basically said that if you guys don't do this, we'll pull the money. We won't work with you guys. So this was really a financial decision that I personally believe that Twitter took. This is the end. I'm done speaking. Yeah. Well, interesting to see how this will shake out. Weren't there two headlines? There was a chief compliance officer first, and then there was a a grievance officer. Because I saw two separate headlines. Yes. Compliance officer and a grievance officer. Yeah. The main headline. There's a whole team, team of guys, I think, that's being hired. Well, it's a, yeah, it's small, but the two main roles are basically the resident grievance officer, as they call it, and then a CEO or, or what they call a, a GD, general director or director general. 
but the big news and and the more legally interesting news is the grievance resident resident grievance officer who is a a resident and on the ground and b deals with the grievances of the state similar to what um the kremlin is now requiring for all of these social networks in in russia and and they do need to and make there these was a third reports. headline. Yeah, there was, a, there was a third one which said that Twitter would would comply with everything required, and this was a very unclear one, which was Twitter would comply with all requests of state. Yeah, well, twi- here's the thing: Twitter today makes money as an ad network. How Twitter makes money? Think about this for a second. Twitter's history in India has been based on their business, which is international, uh, which is somebody, you know, you have a bunch of Twitter users, and then you have people who want to advertise something on Twitter. And once in a while, you'll see a tweet that says promoted tweet. Twitter makes its money, uh, the vast majority of its money from those promoted tweets. And I can make an ad targeting you know, all kinds of interesting demographic characteristics. I can target people geographically. I can target by age, by sex, by all kinds of uh, interesting variables and make an ad uh, for people who only follow Cal on Twitter, for example, people who only follow Lakeisha, you know, you get quite creative. And people who have tweeted the word chocolate, you know, who follow Cal, who live in California, who are under the age of 46, who are women, who are you know, single who are, you see what I'm saying? That's Twitter. That's their ad network. And that's their, the bulk of their revenue today. But that is about to change fundamentally because Twitter is now about to roll out social commerce on Twitter where people are going to have uh, videos. And they already have uh, the ability to do videos. You can tweet a video or a photo. And in that photo, the products in that photo will be clickable and buyable. And if somebody uploads a video, the items or products in that video will be clickable and buyable. And then there will be live streams. And the person in that live stream is going to tell you, hey, you know, I've got five of these left. Buy now. Click the buy button right here inside of this tweet. So when that e commerceification of Twitter happens, now they have a whole different business model. The first one still exists, but the new one is potentially far bigger. And that's why if they were only existing on their previous business model, they would still do everything India tells them to do. This is not a surprise. India had a simple, I'm sorry, Twitter had a very simple choice. Either do what India says or get out. It's it's super simple, but it was complex for the, for Twitter because some of their employees don't agree with that. Some of their employees are saying, get out. Don't we don't we don't play games with countries who don't want the, our version of free speech or what we feel is fair. And don't never mind the fact we've never been there or un, have any understanding of the local culture or anything like that. That's not what you know. So it, it gets very difficult because the senior leadership in we saw Twitter has done camps campaigns internally where the team members get together and you know you get 20% of the company saying 
uh, you do this or else. Spotify had it too when they had Joe Rogan. You had a, a huge per- percentage, not a you had a significant percentage of team members get together and say, no, we don't like Joe Rogan. We know you just paid $100 million for it, but we don't like it. So we're going to leave. We don't want to work at this company anymore if you don't do this. And it's employee activism is what it is. And in America, we've got a whole bunch of this, you know, um, activism on all kinds of issues. And it's a sticky tightrope that the companies have to walk. And this gets back to other headlines we read three months ago. And now you one know... one one last oh. thing here, Tyler. No, no, uh, you one just cut me off through. right at the critical moment. It's like, sorry, we're we're, we're literally sorry. about to climax, and you're like, baby, baby, let's pause. <laughs> okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the the uh, now you know why the headlines from three months ago about Coinbase telling their employees we will not have political discussions at work. That was a huge. Huge, huge, huge headline for about a week that Coinbase, you know, a month before the IPO said, hey, everybody, we got a new thing going on here. You are more than welcome to feel any way you want about any topic on the planet. Uh, But we have our own agenda and mission here at Coinbase. And however you feel about dolphins or genders or races or any of those things, you can leave that at home because at Coinbase, inside these walls, during the time that we are paying you as an employee, while you are on the clock of Coinbase, your feelings about those things should be uh, kept inside of your little sweet, little, beautiful head Uh, because we don't want any of those things uh, detracting from our core mission and focus. And so if you feel that's unfair, that's fine. Uh, you can leave. And in fact, we will give you six months severance pay uh, to make that transition easy for you. And it's been nice knowing you. And you're a lovely person. And thank you for your service. So Coinbase did that. And not Coinbase wasn't the only one. The, the, um, what is uh, David... DHH's company called uh, 37 Signals also did it. And they got, both of those companies got an incredible amount of flack from tech journalists for, you know, oh, you're trying to silence your employees and blah, 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 blah. Well, now you see Twitter as an example in a super, super sticky situation because now you've opened yourself up to potential employee activism mutinies of a sort of you know you've got 30 percent of your company saying hey boss yeah we the engineering team that run this boat you know the engines we're leaving if you make that decision and coinbase is not going to have that problem and their company cannot be taken over internally by a, a political coup in within their own company because they've addressed this issue preemptively twitter has not so that's one way to look at it. So it's a very, you know, I don't, I don't think people realized uh, Coinbase saw what was what the kinds of scenarios that Twitter is now getting itself into preemptively, and uh, Twitter's not alone. This, if left unchecked, this um, well, Apple's going through it with this uh, work remote thing. Google just jumped into it in this Google going uh, with the team remote thing. There's 
all kinds of issues now where post-COVID employees feel empowered to get together in, in a kind of soft union mutinies and make their um, collective strength felt against senior leadership. May, are you trying to jump Chad, in or you're clapping? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was because you, you brought up a really fascinating topic because I think, it, and I think Chetna probably could shed some light on some of the HR legalities about this, but I mean, two points. One, when you work for an organization at the end of the day, you're still an employee of the organization. So there is a little bit of an inauthenticity there because, I mean, I remember back in the days when I worked in a company, I actually chose for the company based on the freedoms and what the company, like how much it aligned with my values, right? That's one. And I think that that's something that's been a little bit diluted now with this sort of, A, with COVID, with the, with the digital nomadism that goes on, with the remote working. I think there's a lot of loose, like gray area now because it's almost, I feel like, it's like people don't know their employer corporate boundaries. And I, I think that's something that I'm noticing heavily as of late more and more and more. Second, I would wonder what the impact would have on unionizations of new versions of unionizations, right? Because unions were there back in the days because of similar things, but back in the 70s or 80s, it, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was different. But now, I, I, do you feel like they might also bring another level of unionization to the current working world? And my third point is, just after having seen what I saw about seven hours ago in Cuba and Havana, it, it's really scary as well because you now have a, um, an island like Cuba that has been basically shut off their internet in various places in Havana where towns are really suffering majorly and there's a major crisis there right now. And it, it, there is a conversation by journalists because I was in a room with them last night really late that now the government, they have to almost pacify the government just to get PPE and certain supplies because it's a communist government. And the challenge is the people revolt and they go libertad, libertad, libertad. It's like, where's the delicate balance of people sort of like being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We also still need them for some of the things that the people are not getting. And they also hold the door, the keys to opening the doors in the oceans for people to come in and help the Cuban people. So it's a very, very sticky, sticky situation because in companies, if people start speaking their opinion in context of a company, you're still an employee of that company. And I think this is why, Tyler, remember back in the day they say you don't talk about sex, politics, or religion at any cocktail party? I think that we've lost our boundaries about talking sex, religion, and politics in areas where we have to be very cognizant that we may be, we may be stepping in some thin ice and we start having those conversations where we're not fully aware of who we're conversing with. Thanks. I may somebody else was trying to jump in there. Uh, this is Michelle speaking. Hey, Michelle. I, um, Hi, I think I've I've sort of made this point earlier a couple of months ago when this topic came came up, but I I I'm not necessarily agreeing with the fact that those issues should be left at home. Uh, and I took the example of um, the Google boycott when they wanted to build, um, you know, like drones for the army or be part of certain projects. Great point. Where employees say they're not yeah. comfortable. A Amazon, yeah, Amazon, Google and Amazon both have. Uh, technologies related to the military, especially on the southern border. <clears throat> so yeah, there's all exactly. kinds of yeah. And and the second thing was that the the reality is that when you join those companies, you ask those questions around companies' values. And again, what I was saying last time is that we also individuals before being employees. And I 
took the example of uh, the like Asian hate that happened a couple of months ago. We talked about it at work because it would have been weird for me to see a colleague going through that and not being able to talk about it. And um, and I think, yeah, people choose companies they want to work on, like work for based on those things as well. So personally, I wouldn't be comfortable working at a company where those issues are considered non-corporate at all. But meaning that those companies such as Google, Facebook, and maybe Apple also attract talents based on those things. And some people wouldn't have worked for them if yeah. they had that con-based sense, you know. We, we had a friend of mine jump in. Hey, Ken. Um, there. Yeah. A friend of mine named Lisa from Stockholm, who's now the chief experience officer for EY, because she sold her design innovation agency to EY, Ernst & Young, and she's a very brilliant, notable figure in Scandinavia and somebody I can, one of the people I really look up to, and she just can really see the future in an incredible way. Um... But she, we were talking to somebody asked me what I would do in this situation of a difficult decision where you have a, some of your team members saying they feel a certain way. And let's say it's 20% of them say, you know, hey, boss, we shouldn't do this or we're quitting. And then I, the, I said what I, I mean, it's just one of the things I absorbed from S- Sweden that really seems to be a beautiful process is they truly democratize the workplace where. You, you know, you as a company of uh, team members, everyone's considered equal and they do truly democratic votes. And Lisa jumped on, on stage and gave a really amazing example <laughs> of one of the they got a client, which is one of the world's biggest hamburger companies. And yes, you're thinking of the right one. And we're talking mil- lots of millions of dollars. And her agency has about 100 employees. And this is a super significant client. And, you know, they uh, one of the people in the t- she assumed, oh, yeah, we're going to do this client. Like, great news. Hey, everybody, great news. Guess who we just got as a client? And somebody said, no, we got to vote on it because they are vegan or there's other issues, you know, about this big hamburger company that, you know, for even you could even say maybe the person wasn't even vegan, but they were environmentalist. And that, you know, meat is, you know. So anyway. Uh, I don't I don't actually know the the issue that raised the vote, but they had a vote on it and ha- f- more than 50 percent of the p- after hearing each other out and a little kind of very friendly Swedish s- style of standing court case. Everyone made their points. They took the vote and they ended up turning away the client. And she gave that example of that. That's how Sweden does things, though. It's like we as a company are our own little tribe and we're going to make our decisions uh, as a tribe for the best of the tribe and it's based on democracy but in that scenario if you do have an issue where it's 20 percent 25 percent 30 percent of people feel we're not happy about this as long as people are feeling like they're being heard and their vote is counted you see what i'm saying those 20 percent, you know what we hear you we understand you your vote matters your your vote's being added onto the scoreboard of making this decision for the company. But as it stands, you know, here's what we feel going forward. And if there's other issues in the future that anyone else feels, you know, um, particularly, you know, that, that we need to bring up to account, everyone's able to bring issues to the table, to the tribe. We all vote on it collectively, respectfully with each other, and we all make the best decisions we can going forward. 
there i suspect that might be a new mo- it works in sweden i'll just say that so i don't know so, so if tyler that, on that yeah. on that on that model um i guess they're just uh playing it forward if you had 10 decisions right over yeah. a year or two years uh maybe you know five of them don't go your way like as an employee right right but one or two might so right. you over over a long term you get more satisfaction the the uh, question i have to ask maybe maybe you and and the the, the swedes in the room is does that add and, and, and obviously not an issue for some of the successful companies that have come out of there, right? But does that add extra time for decision-making that may cause competitive uh, challenges if you have to make a call quickly? I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons people give for a more dictatorial style. You know, in wartime, we've got to make a decision. Uh, you know, the, the technology market is changing so quickly. We have to make decisions fast. Yeah, you know, I, I do know that people say that. So I'm just yeah, curious yeah. But check this how they out. make that work. They're, they're not even thinking in that mind frame they're thinking in the mind frame of if you if people are silenced and forced to accept decisions that they don't agree with without having a real vote about it they no longer perform optimally at work and we want to create an environment where people perform optimally at work and to perform optimally you need to feel that your opinion matters to the company equal to everybody else's and in that context People perform very well, even if their vote, even if their issue didn't win the majority, they still know that their vote is of equal importance to everybody else's. And we're all on the same team. We're all going to make the best decisions that we can. And I imagine if after, you know, if you didn't out of 10 and you didn't win any of the 10, you might realize my values don't align with the rest of the tribe and you might go find a new tribe. But there isn't going to be a really rough uh, coup happening anytime soon within the company because we've all agreed, you know, we're, we're you know, it's a, it's a collaborative consensus driven approach. Uh, but but actually, actually, the sorry, key, I'm going to jump into, yeah, of course sorry, you can, Vinay, but the, I just want to emphasize the whole psychology behind this whole approach is creating an environment where people feel uh, positive about going to work every day. Yeah, I just tweeted to you, I just tweeted to you uh, in TNNTW uh, an article about a company in Bay Area that lost thirty percent of their employees because they were not happy with the decision. And and by the way, uh, the work I do in process facilitation is exactly that: getting groups in a team room together, and it doesn't have to be consensus, but just getting, as you said, uh, getting people in a room together, making sure everybody's heard, given space to voice their opinion and they'll reach a decision right? some some decisions are consensus some are majority some are leader driven but they want to have a say in that and that's an increasing uh, kind of work and i work with a lot of startups tech and that's what defines culture today mm-hmm. this is when i'm done speaking okay Vinay, thanks the, you know the challenge the challenge of uh, i mean like of years and years of um uh, consulting work that I, you know, gave up a while ago when I joined Best Buy, and even the consultants that would try and sell to us um, different things. One of the, the the traditional consulting selling model, like I'm talking about the big guys, and you know, uh, is is you know we will get to execution really fast, right? Even McKinsey would like say, okay, this is a strategy, you know, let's just get it down. You know, you, this is your committee that sets it up, and then they go into a whole change management. This whole word 
change management, this whole orthodoxy around you can manage change and manage resistance. Where that comes from, that entire orthodoxy comes from exactly what you're probing on, Tyler, is the ability by which for leaders to do the right, the, make the decisions the right way in the first place. Because most of that resistance comes from employees, right? Just not doing things fast enough or, or explicitly sabotaging a project. So the consultants love that because then they come in and they put their little facilitators. I don't mean you, sir, Vinay, uh, I'm just saying generally, they put their little facilitators and they will help you manage the resistance. But you could have avoided it if you did what Tyler, you're alluding to there in the first place, you took people along with you. The challenge with that is also like just doing it, uh, you know, in a more systemic and consistent way so that if once or twice it doesn't go the employee's way, they know and they trust the leadership that next time it will. But I, I think, uh, uh, I think yeah, as the models change, um, you know, we, we may need less of that kind of ripoff, I'll say. I can say it because I used to sell that stuff at, at KPMG and Accenture. Ripoff consulting model where you're basically trying to help people manage resistance, right? And it's huge, millions and millions of dollars of things. And employees get pissed off with that too, right? So anyway. I would, I'd agree with you, Cal, because I've worked yeah. with consultants who've come in and sold that approach and actually left a bit of a mess when they've left. And, you know, I think there are organizations also, I, I agree with Tyler's approach, where you consult from the of work with the employees and get some insights and work with that and um, hold focus groups, things like that, to get them involved from the outset. And so I think that's a better way of managing change, more proactive. So they're involved in the process and it creates a sense of belonging. But in order to do that, you have to have some psychological safety where people feel safe speaking up and being open. And that's a big piece around the culture. And then, you know, and going into this point of like, you know, this democratizing i think that that works provided you know that people are shooting for the same thing um if if you've got groups that i don't know environments that have a bias towards certain races or belief system you know and they don't come out in day-to-day but they come out in confidential surveys that could lean it could change the direction of things. So I think that you have to have the right environment in order to create that. But it's a wonderful approach, I think, to decision-making um, for business to have. But you have to have the safety and all these other things in place yeah. in the culture before I wanna, it happens. Thank you, Chetna. I want to jump into the other big headlines because we have a two-hour... Um, I just make my last comment? Go ahead, Frost. ...that I wanted to try and... Sure. Thank you very much. I, and I just wanted your feedback on this one because I remember India had been talking about the Chinese loose around them with Afghanistan, Pakistan, and uh, Bangladesh posing a threat on account of China's uh, alliance with them. So with Twitter now allowing, um, now basically giving India the green light on anything and everything that they want with, you know, agreeing with the state laws. Well, in terms of setting precedent, I would feel that Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh would now want something similar short term in the future with Mm -hmm. Twitter. And, th- and this sets a precedent because right. Twitter would be recognized as a major, major uh, uh, brainwashing tool for the population in, in terms of or control tool for the population. So, I mean, I mean, what are your thoughts there? I'm thinking this is, uh, Thank you uh, for raising this the, is the end of Twitter. It's a very, every country will now have much more control over social networks within their geographies. And that's an incredibly important we're going to watch how that plays out in the next few months. We're going to see headlines. We're going to see crazy headlines that are hard to imagine right now. 
Yep. Yeah. So just so you guys know, Twitter was the holdout because Facebook, WhatsApp, right. Instagram had already appointed all the grievance officers. So Twitter was the holdout. And now there's no more holdouts. <laughs> ah, we've got Dan. Sorry, Daniel, I missed you before. Daniel's a Swedish t- Texan. <laughs> That's an amazing combination, by the way. Um, uh, but welcome, Daniel. Morning. Yeah, uh, thank you. I was just going to add quickly since I've been doing some some of uh, both startups and, and non-startups where we've worked with culture and values in the Swedish companies. And I think just to add some context to where Swedes get to vote, so to, sp- so to speak, uh, not necessarily the case of Lisa's company. I remember when she talked about that, but we've had the instance where, where we've asked all the employees about what values and culture they want with the company and what the company should represent, et cetera. Obviously there's, there's a goal of going, et cetera, et cetera, but still values and culture have been coming from all the employees. When you've had that situation, it's kind of tough to overrule, so to speak, um, from, from management. If you would take on a client that totally goes against those values that uh, all the employees have set together. So that just adds some context. Whereas if you've never had that, obviously it's, it's, it's a lot easier, of course. Um, And which uh, Cal, for example, it doesn't mean that for every client you have to vote. Do we want to take them on? But if somebody recognizes, okay, we got a possible client, their values are totally contradictory with ours, or they are doing things out there in the world, which is really bad uh, again. And it, goes uh, contradictory to our value which is this then they may bring it up to okay we shouldn't work with these guys so check that this was just out my little thank addition. you daniel for the additional context there the fraz your point leads perfectly into the third largest article of today at this very moment the number three article uh as judged by the number of tweets and retweets is the headline is about Vietnam's influencer army wages information war on Facebook. Now watch how this headline relates to our last point, or especially Faraz's last point, where now that Twitter's complying with India, they've really opened themselves up to kowtow to any regime. And he mentioned Pakistan, where, you know, he he's, I think you were born in Pakistan, so that's a very fair apt comparison. But here it is about Vietnam, where... Thousands um, of army units are fighting wrong views. And there's a name for this new uh, force called Force 47. State media reveals network of Force 47 Facebook groups. Vietnam threatens to block Facebook over censorship requests. Facebook calls Force 47 group following Reuters investigation. YouTube says nine channels... Uh, removes nine channels over spam policy. And in Vietnam, where the state is fighting a fierce online battle against political dissent, social media influencers are most likely to be soldiers than celebrities. Force 47 is a Vietnamese army's online information warfare unit is known, consists of thousands of soldiers who, in addition to their normal duties, are tasking are tasked with setting up, moderating, and posting on pro-state Facebook groups to correct wrong views online quote-unquote wrong views or views that don't conform with the state and so they're using social media and their um, social media army uh, quite literally to uh, create you know to correct what they say correct wrong views online 
views that don't comply with the state. And so they're using these social medias as a sort of in a semi-weaponized way because it's a it's a numbers game and they can effectively outnumber. And so this is plays right into Faraz's point. Before we were assuming, ah, the state is not themselves going to play an active role in creating content on these networks. They're just going to request that, you know, this and this and that be removed. Well, Vietnam's very likely to be next. And even before Pakistan, reading this article, I can imagine the conversations that Vietnam is having with Facebook saying, hey, uh, we happen to notice that you're complying with everything India wants to do. Listen, we are a, Vietnam's 100 million people, by the way. That's no small country and we want you to do the same here and uh yeah you can start tomorrow or you can leave so that's where it gets really interesting and they again this comes down to the timing of this because for this to be effective they need to start it now especially in southeast asia because facebook just announced and in, in asia is ahead of the u.s on this where companies are starting to be built on top of Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp so that if you do this, this friction, this battle where Vietnam is now, you bet I can, this is a super simple prediction. You're going to have Vietnam um, saying, Hey, why do we have this army where we're trying to battle all of these wrong views when we can just have tell Facebook to algorithmically remove these wrong views, which of course they can do. So, and monitor the accounts and Facebook is, you know, they're going to give tools to Vietnam to co- properly monitor all of the, what they feel are the bad actors and silence what they're saying. If it's not, quote unquote, the right view or if it is the wrong view. And we I, I th- let's bring up, I mean, with all respect to Facebook, Facebook tried to go into China. They made an incredible, uh, remarkably sincere effort to enter China. Um, and Mark speaks Mandarin, right? And he met with Xi Jinping in China and really want, you can understand why Facebook wanted to go into China. That's not a difficult thing to figure out. So, but to go into China, you know, goddamn well, you're going to need tools to give to China to police all of the content on Facebook. And you know, if you don't have those tools available, China is going to laugh at you and say, no, thanks. Like this is an even before you even have the meeting with China, you're going to have to say, oh, of course, we've got all the tools you could ever want about removing any content you don't like about policing the content 100,000 percent in 20 ways to Friday. So no doubt they have that ability to give those moderation tools to the state to do themselves like Vietnam is now obviously going to ask for. So clearly they technically can do it. Vietnam knows they can. Vietnam's using an army of people to put in content that they like. And the question is, how long before Vietnam's able to use those tools that uh, Facebook clearly had intended for China to police the uh, unfriendly uh, content with, with inside of Vietnam? So here it is. And, you know, but on the other side, you've got... Uh, Vietnam's not unique. China also has uh, armies of people creating content as well inside of all kinds of social apps. And it's um, it's going to be very interesting it, to, to your because point. Yeah, there's going to be interesting political implications that we can't yet really imagine. What's up, Carl? Just quickly on the yeah, timing. Just... 
uh, sorry, I'll be very quick, just quickly on the time. There's also, it's, it's blood in the water, right? Like you had this massive sort of corporation or this series of, of oligarchies that were, you know, infinitely powerful and, and unreachable and, and up high there on the mountain. And then as each country is watching them and going, hold on a minute, now the EU is attacking them and hold on a minute, now the UK and now the even the US and, and now China and they're kicked out of India and there's blood in the water. So they see, you know, if you, if you cut a man and show that he bleeds, you're no longer afraid of him. And I, I feel like this is a little bit of that. Uh, Karam, so just, yeah, just quickly wanted to update um, in terms of the Pakistan. Um, you know, uh, Pakistan already has the precedence in terms of actually blocking the YouTube. So that happened back in 2012 and the YouTube was banned for almost five years. Um, and at that time, they actually came up with this, you know, deployed um, the operation of a national level URL filtering and blocking system along the lines of Golden Shield, which China has. So pretty much the capability is there. It's just like tomorrow, if somebody doesn't actually <laughs> come in line with whatever they say on the government level, um, you know, it's just going to be pressing a button and here you go. So, yeah, there's already a precedence there. Like for five years, there was no YouTube uh, in Pakistan, but then hmm. it, it restored. Yeah. I'm reading, I've got to send out this article about, we read this before, uh, this uh, Vietnamese army force, I think was first noticed a week or so ago when we touched on it briefly, but interesting to see that it's back um, today as the third biggest headline of today. And I just want to scan it one more time because there's some interesting points that they point out. Adam, the may I say something Go ahead, while you're doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, Pakistan's one thing, and, and, and then you've got Bangladesh and the other allies of China that they've, I guess, kind of strategically placed around India, right? Well, yeah, not, yeah. that's not a coincidence. Yeah, they've got Pakistan on one side, <laughs> now they've got Myanmar on the so, other side, yeah. And you've and Sri Lanka at the bottom. By the way, exactly. Faraz, just to highlight that that's yeah. not a coincidence, it's called the String of Pearls, the port's... There's a port in Myanmar, yeah. there's a port in Sri Lanka, and a port in Pakistan that allow China to use the waterways well, surrounding India. And the name for well, it is I'm called String is... of Pearls. And it goes through Thailand, it goes down the Strait of Malacca, around Singapore, yeah, all the way Gwadar, to Gwadar, there's all of them. I yeah. don't know exactly what you're referring to. But what, the, what I'm trying to say here is, but imagine the now, now that India's done it, okay, and, and now you have let's say Pakistan and the others come in and they start. Imagine the power that this gives a tech giant. Like imagine the power that Jack Dorsey has in his hands and now he can actually negotiate amongst these nations. He's done no. it for one. He's, the, he's giving them permission. He actually has some negotiation power. He can play these nations against each other. Right. No, my point is, is that in the right now, in June, July, this summer begins the gold rush of mom and pop shops and even street food stall sellers and even fishermen doing their business now via social media, which even Lakeisha has shown examples in Thailand recently of fishermen. We've highlighted examples of farmers, and this is popping off as we speak in Asia right now. So Facebook today is a community in Twitter and TikTok are communication channels of content, content channels of communication. They are very, very soon about to become your actual shopping mall, your actual main street, your your the, the heart of your commerce of your country 
uh, is in the future going to happen on these plat in the very near future is going to happen on these platforms. So what happens when today, yes, Vietnam can say, or India could say, hey, Twitter, do this or else. Hey, Facebook, do this or else. A year from now, when there's a million, maybe even 10 million mom and pop shops doing their business primarily on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. What happens then when India says, hey, Facebook, do this? And Facebook says, do you realize we have 15 million mom and pop shops doing their bit? We're going to close down 15 million mom and pop stores if you tell us to leave. And then Facebook will at that point have a big upper hand in that negotiation. Hey, Tyler, this is Rob. Do you think that uh, if I was a nation, I would be trying to create a parallel uh, program? uh, A domestic. Exactly. Robert, you did it. There it is. Now we've played it out in exactly right, because if these nations are paying attention, they realize what I just said, which is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, uh, Snapchat are all going to e-com and Pinterest has, has already started it as well. They're e-commerceifying and they're going to be competing to get every mom and pop flower shop, cake shop, shoe shop, etc., on their platform. And once they are on those platforms within not so long a time, the digital e-commerce shop will be selling more than the brick and mortar store. And they will no longer really need the brick and mortar store. And then that's where it gets really interesting because now Facebook or whoever, Snapchat, TikTok, has an incredible amount of influence in that negotiation when the government says, hey, take down this content. And Facebook says, no, what are you going to do about it? You're going to shut down 20 million mom and pop stores? You're going to kick us out? I don't think you got the balls, Modi. So Tyler, this is, as they're, but as well, they're me, localizing, oh, sorry. Yeah, what, let me finish to put a, a little cherry on top of that. Modi sees that move coming. And that's why Modi's going to say, ah, we need the, 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 the battle is today that we need the local versions of uh, Twitter, which is coup. We need the local versions of these social media apps, which are happening. TikTok now has three strong players in India, which, Vinay, you could probably name the the n- new local Indian versions of TikTok that are popping up. And Oh, yeah. The, big, the, the biggest one is a company called ShareChat. Huge, huge. Right. They're so my, adding about a million, million and a half users a month. Right. So my point is, is India feels far more comfortable with a local Indian version of TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and all of these apps because it avoids that incredibly impossible um, mutiny-like scenario where if it's a domestic local company that they control economically and politically, that com- that company's not going anywhere, right? I mean, that company can't say, ah, we're going to move to where exactly? What do you mean? I mean it's, you're stuck. You're India. You're an Indian company with Indian companies on your platform. So it's a much safer scenario. And that's why I've been predicting now for about a month, countries are going to wake up and realize, ah, we don't want international tech companies running our apps. We want our own domestic apps that can become unicorns, especially now with the e-commerceification of these consumer-facing apps. Because nearly every consumer-facing app, even Tinder, could e-commerceify where I could buy flowers for the date 
you know, that I, to this, just to show this, you know, person who I'm pursuing, you know, that I think they're awesome, I might be able to buy them something to prove that, you know, that I actually have some, um, you know, whatever. So I, I predict that's I coming. Just quickly, I also just wanted to say. Yeah. One okay, thing. just quickly, just give me no, ten no, seconds. Marie, just... hold on. Uh, go, let Marie, Marie go ahead. no, no, yeah, Marie, Marie, and then Karam, go ahead. Just one thing I would say is the reason also why they care to keep um, social platforms there and for all the social commerce is because you, you need to remember they don't get any tax from them running the advertising. They will, however, be able to tax the sales of products run through those uh, social channels. So for countries, it's very important to have platforms that can encourage and fuel uh, more of this economic growth because then they can tax it. So that is kind of something that I'm thinking about why yeah. as to why they would want to keep this sure. whole social commerce going as well. Sure, sure. Karam? So, so I don't know whether you saw that like a couple of days ago. I couldn't join back yesterday and the day before. So I tweeted that that Indian social e-commerce deal share raises 144 million eyes international expansion. So here we go. That's linked back to what you were saying. Say it, I didn't make your I didn't quite get your point. Could you say it again? Oh. Okay, so what you were saying that, you know, indigenous platform yes. actually coming from India, yeah. um, actually expanding, not just in India, but overseas and raised 144 million, um, the a Series D round. So, um, you know, coming in, actually <laughs> replacing Facebook um, and having like a, you know, parallel structure. So, I mean, this is not the small amount, uh, you know, raising. So what I would say to that yeah. is that my sense is that the platforms themselves, the international platforms are already, you know, a step ahead. And I, I, I say that because living in Thailand, you know, I understand that we're one of the pilot markets for the shop now uh, feature. And so I've received bakers from Singapore, you know, trying to sell me cakes. I received a shop now request from a dressmaker in Australia. So I think that as the localization process is taking place, it seems to me just based on my experience that they're also regionalizing it as well so that it's not going to be exclusively domestic. And I think that will be the checkmate. Mm. And there'll probably be another point after that, right? That's so they point. can say, yeah, if you want to go ahead and lock your markets to only, right. you know, you know, customers within India and you don't want to sell to customers in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Thailand, go right, go right ahead. But we have the edge on the international and the regional markets. Yeah, I just, I just want to add, by the way, even these local companies, there's an article about Google is going to invest in ShareChat, right? And uh, even in Coup, the Chinese investors are out, but in their next series of funding, there's uh, Facebook investments and probably Google that's looking to invest as well. They've already indicated an interest to invest. So it's becoming a hodgepodge of ownership and stuff like that. But in most of these companies in India, a lot of the original Chinese seed funding or Series A funding is being replaced by the likes of Google and others. Hmm. Okay, keeping keeping on the post. So the other, uh, so there's a quote uh, about the Vietnamese um, army force on Facebook, um, where it says founding leader Ho Chi Minh Party Mark. 
Um, these developments unfolding in Vietnam are scary and have expanded with impunity, says uh, Asian Pacific Policy Council of Internet Rights Group Access. Now, we are witnessing the creation of a reality where people are not safe to speak freely online and where there's no concept of individual privacy. Okay. Um, the other big, the fourth biggest article of today at the moment is uh, about a startup called PodSwap, a startup offering a battery replacement service for Apple's AirPods, because there is a battery inside of your AirPods case that eventually wears out. And um, and it's a great example of why we need these new right to repair legislation, especially with regard to Apple devices, because the first generation Apple AirPods are getting to the point now where the batteries uh, are hitting that sort of critical uh, phase of no longer being um, as useful as they once were. And if you do a very cheap uh, battery swap, then it is. And it's an incredibly simple thing to do, or it could be. Um, anyway, the other big article at the moment is, let's see, there's a Krebsamos group launches ransomware crowdsource. There's now a crowdsourced ransomware payment tracker, and the site has already tracked $32 million in ransom payments this year alone. And there's the analysis of the first half of 2021 private funding for cybersecurity companies has reached $9 billion, up more than double from the same half, first half of 2020. And, uh, and eclipsed a record total for, and it's already passing all of all of 2020. Cybersecurity startups raised $7.8 billion, and they've already raised $9 billion in the first half of this year. So it's... Uh, Cybersecurity companies are clearly one of the benefactors of all of this ransomware hacking. And Financial Times has a new headline that after the DD crackdown, uh, China-based fitness app Keep, a podcasting platform called Gmalaya, and medical data analytics startup LinkDoc have all paused their U.S. IPO plans. SoftBank and Tencent um, are the backers of Keep. <laughs> what a surprise. Um, that another, wow. Oh, this actually helps us figure something out. Interesting coincidence that SoftBank was behind another one of these um, Chinese tech companies that were planning to IPO in the very near future. I wonder if that's a coincidence. What do you think this has to do with the uh, statement Japan made about stepping up to defend Taiwan in the event of an attack? I, I think that that is the, the point I want to make here is when Jack Ma's IPO for Ant Financial got shut down, I threw out the posited the wild conspiracy theory that maybe I asked uh, 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 our friend David, who was on stage a minute ago, is David still with us? He's not. Um, but let's ping him. That's the beauty of Clubhouse, isn't it? Uh, David Chang. Where are you, David? Let me, give me bear with me he for two seconds. He was here until a while ago. By yeah, the way, was... Link, Link Doc is also backed by Alibaba. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, ah, here's David. Let me ping David. Because, hear me out here. I threw out the idea that when Jack Ma's and Financial IPO got scrapped, by the Chinese state, that that inspired Didi 
to do a U.S. IPO quickly so that the investors from SoftBank, Masayoshi-san, could get his money out because he's the largest investor in Didi. And so, and he's also best friends with Jack Ma from Alibaba. And Jack Ma got shut down. His IPO got in China got scrapped. And I think Je- uh, Masayoshi saw what happened to Jack Ma and said, ah, shit, uh, I've got other huge investments in China that are all going to get the shit beat out of them in the near future. Let's go IPO them in the U.S. so I can get my money out. So that inspired. David's the, back. I, I David's pre- back. David, you're back. Fantastic. Thank you, Cal. Hey, David. We just saw, Hi. I just saw something that, remember, I had a theory that Didi went to IPO in the U.S. and even went against the regulators' uh, strong insistence that they should pause their U.S. IPO. They said, no, nah, no, nah, fuck that. We're going. We are going to jump over the drawbridge. Now that the drawbridge is being lifted, we're going to hop in our car and jump over the drawbridge and over to New York and do our IPO. Because I think Masa from SoftBank, who was the biggest investor, was telling them, hey, if we don't go IPO in the U.S., my money is going to get locked up in your startup in China. So let's go run over to the U.S. and do an IPO. Now, the headline just came out today that a new startup called uh, 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 there's news that a Chinese based fitness app named Keep um, has paused their U.S. IPO plans. They were about to IPO. And guess who the big investor was? Again, Masa from SoftBank. What are the odds that there were two now DD and Keep SoftBank invested IP, uh Chinese tech companies that were planning to IPO in the U.S. around the same time. And I'm willing to bet that Keep announced their IPO plans in the days or weeks after Alibaba's uh, uh, and financial IPO got squashed, just like just at the, around the same time that Didi did. So let's try and find when did Didi announce their plans to IPO in the U.S. and when did Keep announce their plans to IPO in the U.S.? I bet you they are very near in time and I bet you they are both shortly after and financial IPO plans got squashed in China. What do you think, David? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's find out. Let's see. Let's see if Tyler's crazy or let's see if Masa realized, oh, shit, China's going to crack down on the big tech companies. I've got a few tech companies that I've invested very heavily in. I need to make sure that I can get my money out. Hey, hey, guys, go IPO in the U- U.S. ASAP, like right now. And that's why Didi just ran out the door. And now uh, this one, uh, Keep, which is also backed by Masa at SoftBank, didn't quite get the car out of the garage fast enough to jump over the drawbridge. And now they're uh stuck inside but they're not the only one there's a couple of others um Gmalaya, which is a uh podcasting platform and LinkDoc, which is a medical data analytics company and cheryl i think you said that LinkDoc is backed by alibaba yep 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 so alibaba similarly might have under alibaba health right so tyler yes there's a new thing with softbank as well mm-hmm. i just tweeted it Mm-hmm. SoftBank-owned Line goes open source to help central banks mint CBDCs. Line Plus wants its platform 
to meet the demands of different central banks. So the key takeaways in brief, Line Plus has released a blockchain for central banks to issue their own digital currencies. It's currently in talks with several Asian central banks. Mass adoption of CBDCs could be round the corner, but the technology need the technology used to achieve them is still disputed. And that's SoftBank's company. That's SoftBank's yes, stuff. Line is from Japan, and it's the main messaging app even in in Thailand. And... Well, maybe now Cheryl will have a better experience with her banking now that this is coming in. Oh no, fintech can do shit here if the client wants to have cash. It's nothing to do with fintech. News. It's a Japanese culture who love to smell cash. That's why I have to go to the bank. <laughs> SoftBank and early talks to investors. Farm line soft SoftBank. I stake it. Can you read the headline again? I'm not finding it. I tweeted it, um, Tyler. So you you, you and five thousand other people in okay, the past me, twenty minutes. Okay, let me let me repeat that. So uh-huh. it says SoftBank owned line mm-hmm. goes open source to help central banks mint CBDCs. Decrypt. Line Plus wants its platform to meet the demands of different central banks. Line Plus has released a blockchain for central banks to issue their own digital currencies. It's currently in talks with several Asian central banks. Mass adoption of CBDCs could be around the corner, but the technology used to achieve them is still being disputed. Line Plus, a South Korean software and tech services corporation owned by Japanese multinational conglomerate SoftBank, has released a blockchain platform to help central banks get banks get their CBDCs off the ground. Hmm. That's cool. David, do you have a thought on that? Uh, yeah, well, good luck. <laughs> I mean, trying to... <laughs> hey, trying to... Yeah, good luck trying to take that business away from all of these central governments, right? I think... I think Line is successful in a few markets um, globally, and that's probably only Japan, Thailand, and Taiwan. And I think that's probably the extent of their reach. Mm-hmm. Um, I really l- doubt large sovereign nations will hand over the keys, um, not only for CBDC, but even po- possibly quite unlikely for e-payment, which in most countries in the world is a concessionary business. Yeah, there's, but if states start doing their own CBDCs, um, what was what was the conversation we were having with James from Mastercard in the fintech room uh, over the weekend? Cal, you remember this? And Carl, you were there as well. Ben was there as well, and we were talking about how the cards are now starting to play friendly with crypto and even CBDCs. And um, as makes sense, but then it's, I don't think it's that hard to imagine that these apps, like the messaging apps, will want to play friendly with CBDCs. They're just going to have to do whatever the government tells them to do, but then the government will have a a way to, um, rather than, for example, in China, China has its own central bank digital currency, the digital yuan. And... Uh, it uses its own app currently, but I can imagine once it really gets a strong adoption, they will then allow Alipay or WeChat Pay to also um, enable users to exchange this uh, central the the Chinese digital currency in from within their own apps, but in a way that of course the government is going to need access to all of that data. 
Yeah, I, mean, the, I think the discussion from this weekend was just around um, uh, trying to understand the visa. We, we, it, it flew. It came from the understanding what visa was doing with the uh, uh, the, the crypto, uh, the, the the alliance they have with fifty, or, ah. the, or the deal they have with fifty, ah. um, fifty of those companies. So that, that's where the discussion came from. Then it was about just one second. Then it was about um, just how. Um, I think I think James alluded to the fact that you know it's 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 in in the interest of all the card players just to work with everyone, right? They just they 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 don't care. And then we had a discussion about whether they took the risk on with a float, and and we went to and fro on that. Yeah, but by the way, now I just found uh, a May's article about Line, and the key word that I missed, which is totally fills in the missing piece in this puzzle, is that. Line is going to go open source so that the government will have access to everything within the app, essentially. Um, hmm. That's really interesting. Tyler, so, Shane, I have hey, some Shane, go ahead. comment on this. Yeah. Uh, I think while they're not going to get a big government to adopt their software, they might very well get the smaller ones to do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be CBDC, it has to be, it can be some other government oriented blockchain thing, for example, tax collection, uh, customs, all sorts of things where governments and many governments just don't have the software development capability to do. So this can become the ultimate ABM. You've got, uh, you know, 150 countries to target. And obviously the big guys are going to roll their own, just like the big auto companies and the big cloud companies roll their own. But the second tier is not bad, not a bad market. Masa is Musa's a smart guy, as we know. Yeah. So I Go just ahead. looked up the, the information on um, Keep. Yep. They just closed uh, early this year, around 10th of January, um, a Series F round led by Vision Fund and also Hill House Capital. Um, I'm sure you know who they are, right? They're the yeah. big um, which was, the Chinese. Which was just weeks before Alibaba got... Uh, shut down the IPO. That happened in early February, yeah? Uh, early Jan, this did. Oh, so around um, the same time. Uh, well, right after, yeah. Um, and then immediately one day after the news, uh, the press release on this $360 million round led by Vision Fund. Mm. The next day there was a press release about potential IPO in the Oh US. my goodness. <laughs> Which is bizarre. Why would you <laughs> announce an IPO a day after announcing this massive new fundraising well well the 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 ipo news was very assertive like um like potential ipo insight question mark kind of kind of release huh because softbank's investment from the vision fund normally announcements take often a month uh a fundraising announcements like the one keep did where they raised money from softbank's vision fund those types of Fundraising announcements are delayed by weeks. Um, yeah, so I think the 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 one that came out on tenth of January, that was a uh, an announcement after they've already closed the round. Correct, everybody. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And then the which I means which yeah. means the investment might have actually taken place exactly. before the Alibaba uh, at correct blow up. I and I will bet everything that it did. And by the way. There's usually an amazing amount of investments that close before the Christmas break, like in yes, mid December. Exactly. 
So because I, most of the execs at the funds actually take the entire, especially in China, they take the entire month of December, January, and early Feb off. So basically the uh, Western holidays plus the Chinese New Year holidays. Yes, kind of. I think that's driven by the fact that Silicon Valley historically has this, you know, December 20th kind of deadline and a lot of deals get done in early December before people go away for, you know, the traditional holidays. holidays. And so I bet that that Vision Fund deal closed the fundraising finished before the holiday break. And then the, the announcement was made just after. And then the IPO <laughs> announcement was made the next day. That's really funny. Most possibly to give some reassurance to uh, their LPs. Now that they've invested into China where uh, IPO within China seems murky at best. right? Yeah. So I think it was really a, a call of, inv- uh, of, of confidence to, to the, the the funds LPs most yeah. likely. Yeah. Faraz, are you on stage? This headline about the um, Vatican honoring of Sheikh Mohammed um, fills country with pride. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed received the Man yes, of right. Humanity yeah. Award from the Vatican's, uh, and I, without reading it, I imagine it has something to do with the fact that the UAE now has. Uh, churches and synagogues and is very and then has made ties with israel lately or recognition of israel and all of these kinds of things and that's why the vatican is giving him this award for kind of so there's uh, two things there yeah there's one which is which is the uh setting up of the ministry of tolerance and of course tolerance for all faiths all religions all nationalities all creeds all colors regardless of who what when how um, and then and the second thing is his personal contribution in terms of humanitarian aid. And the third thing is the national contribution in terms of humanitarian aid to the, um, to the globe. And more so his personal contributions, um, which he nor anyone around his circle, nor anyone in the nation ever mentioned um, until very recently when it was actually by, by mistake, it just came out. Um, and I think you and you and I, Tyler, actually once um, spoke about it most recently, where he himself was um, sending his own planes in line with some of the um, uh, some of the planes for the national carriers during COVID to carry patients from some of the um, le- lesser developed nations in in the world to carry patients back to field hospitals in the United Arab Emirates, treat them and get them back home. So similar things like that that weren't being reported. Um, and have now caught the eye of uh, the Pope and other uh, nations around the world. That's why it's been done. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, hopefully that will c- continue to spread um, all around there. The We covered the Vietnam big story. The other big stories today are that we did the DD crackdown. China's internet regulator says this is totally related to the DD crackdown in the aftermath of it, that China's internet regulator says any Chinese company with data for more than 1 million users must undergo a security review before listing its shares overseas. Security review of your data. So we make sure, um, yeah, they, they, China, you got to hand it to China. They definitely understand the power of data. Other big uh, headlines today. Inside Simulation City, Waymo's latest virtual world in which it trains, tests, and validates its Waymo driver, which is an algorithm. It's not a person. 
it's Waymo driver software in preparation for open roads. And this leads to a conversation we've had now a couple times very recently um, about Waymo operates as a, a self-driving taxi service in some very predefined areas under predefined conditions, meaning it won't operate in the rain, it doesn't operate in the snow, it operates in situations that it knows it will can operate safely um, given the technology that it has. But that uh, self-driving pizza delivery, food delivery, even people delivery can happen in certain cities where the roads are flat with nicely painted lines with very clear stop signs and all of these types of things. Um, and that's why certain cities are being chosen um, over others. Uh, by the way, Ho <laughs> Waymo will not be operating in Ho Chi Minh City in our lifetime because that <laughs> some Southeast Asian cities are absolutely mind-blowingly chaotic in terms, of, but in a beautiful way. Um, and that would drive you know, these cars crazy. And I saw a hilarious video of a Tesla trying to drive through Ho Chi Minh City, which similar to some cities in India and around Southeast Asia, where you come into these intersections where it's 10 roads all merging simultaneously in an absolute beautiful cacophony of madness. And the car, the self-driving Tesla literally started flashing red on the dash, you know, take the wheel, take the wheel, take the wheel. And the car just came to a stop. Um, because it's going to be a long while before an autonomous. <laughs> well, so, speaking of that, that's really uh, that's really funny. Uh, hang hang on, down one second. That's really funny. Uh, we have here in Oxford uh, a company called Oxbotica, um, which is like a, a, a autonomous. It's a, a driving kind of startup, and um, and they're using it in all kinds of different places now. Uh, uh, there's a professor here who, who started that, and they have these uh, cars driving around, autonomous cars now in Oxford. Right, and uh, um, and they do similar things when the with the cyclists, which is why why I have this observational thing around cyclists, right? Because there's a lot of cyclists here, and they literally just stop, like in the middle of the road, they just stop, like, and it's like everyone's beeping, and they're just like, and of course they have a driver in there because they're just collecting data and stuff, and then uh, uh, you know, and the driver's trying not to um, intervene and and get it going again, but it's quite hilarious when you see these cars operate in you know more a lot of human based systems. Uh, you know, with, with lots of humans around. Uh, anyway, sorry, Dan. Sorry. Yeah. Well, speaking of all of that, uh, the you know version nine of the full self-driving was released to the beta tester. So it's a relatively small group. And the first videos are being posted now. And one was someone driving through the fog. I think it was San Francisco but, or around here uh, driving through fog. And it did a fantastic job. You, you got the feeling it was going to it was doing a better job than you would have done in the fog. And also people are commenting on how it can do roundabouts now and uh, much better than before. It's driving much more confident. So it is making uh, progress. The whole thing is supposed to be released to everyone in a month or so. But they, of course, they've said that a few times. But uh, it is out now. And uh, the thousand people or whoever, whatever number it is right now, are trying it out. And so far, pretty impressive results. Yeah, that's the benefit of the camera system that Dan's referring to is it can drive in situations that uh, radar would, you know, Waymo is not going to be operating. If there is fog, they'll just ground the vehicles while the fog is happening. That's why they're testing it in Phoenix, which has um, doesn't have fog or rain generally. And um, 
and that's why they're they even say in this article that they just tweeted out but they names why the challenge of even operating in san francisco uh it'll be a while before they even attempt to do this in san francisco but um phoenix makes a lot of sense now we understand why there tyler Hmm. quickly is okay i understand phoenix i understand san francisco what about regions like boston and the northeastern part of the united states with blizzards not going to happen well you won't see you won't see waymo's going to focus on the areas where like i said where it's the friendliest to uh, exactly the easiest areas exactly first point. right and but tesla is taking a totally different approach which is hu- humans are going to stay in the cars the cars are going to continue to get smarter and smarter and smarter and we want cars driving on as many roads as possible with as many drivers as possible because the car we're going to take all of that data and learning data and add it to our models and all of that mile every mile driven isn't useful in improving the algorithms and which one do you think is going to learn faster? The, you know, uh, the Waymo approach of starting in safe areas and then, uh, you know, eventually getting to busy cities or the Tesla approach of keeping people in the cars, sitting in the seat until eventually less and less of that driver's attention is needed. And eventually, I don't mean to go off on a tangent yeah. here, but I'll just quickly add a point, right? Yeah. We still have people that love horses. And love riding horses, right? Yeah. In the same way, I still feel in the long term, and I feel there'll, there'll be a not a minority population, there will be a significant population of gas guzzlers, machine lovers who will be loving those cars, who will be loving the sports cars, will be loving the speed of the, the thrill of speed, um, yes. whether it be electric or whether it be whatnot, yes. where autonomous might be a portion but not significant. And that's just my personal opinion. I may yes. very well be wrong. But here, the point is... I think is... it's going to be, uh, maybe a, a percentage-wise, might be a smaller percentage of cars that in existence, but uh, passenger miles will be the vast, vast majority because it'll be just far, far cheaper. I mean, you know, just like... economics. It, there will be, as you said, people with sports cars that love to drive them like horses, you know, people on horses. But, you know, to get from here to there... It'll be cheaper and easier just to take the and the, uh, the autonomous EV. Yeah, but it's... Yeah, most of the world isn't as developed as the United States. Right, but the horses are now being, con- you know, have a limited area within which they're able to operate. Where in the past they could pretty much go anywhere unregulated, and now it's very regulated where horses are allowed to go. Gas cars will be the same. Gas cars will only be allowed in certain areas because they're not as safe. They pollute the environment and all on and on and on and on and on so it'll become just like horses a luxury that you can afford to pay the incredibly high insurance of having a human navigated car which is much more prone to accidents and polluting the environment and all these other things so i'll, I'll only continue on this if you want me if you no. let me tell but i don't <laughs> I want, want to go this. i want to go to the next right. topic actually no, no, shut up, Tyler, this is shaheen i just want to make one quick comment the, the brilliance of Tesla's model is that they effectively get paid collecting data. Right. And collection of data is a very expensive thing. Correct. As Ford and Waymo and Toyota and others are learning. Smart. So this is really, really smart. It is. You're a great they point. Charge you $10,000 for the privilege of doing that. So cool. <laughs> they really subsidi- should be paying you. I, you're, we are subsidizing Tesla's development of their eventual autonomous delivery system. Yes. We so, subsidize them in every step of the value correct. chain. Correct. And that's yes. brilliant. It is. 
this this Elon guy. He's I I people say he's not smart. I I disagree. I think he's actually he might actually be a clever individual. This Elon guy. So New York City's new biometrics privacy law takes effect, barring businesses from selling customer data and requiring posted notices at their doors about data collection. Oh, that's interesting. <clears throat> so if you have um, if you're collecting any kind of customer data, you must notify them as they enter the door. The question is what size font, because just like user license agreements on apps, essentially um, people are agreeing to all kinds of data collection when they use an app. Uh, and now they'll do the same when they walk into Starbucks. So Starbucks will have a, a, a micro font warning as at the handle of every door that says, your face is being recorded and used and your voice is being recorded and used and you know everything you ordered, your purchase history here is being... By the way, every supermarket has data about everything you've ever bought there. In fact, my uncle pioneered that with Safeway, initially with Vons, actually in the 80s, through the loyalty program, which has now become an industry standard everywhere. It's an ad network. You're, they sell the data of what you, what popcorn brand you bought is being sold to the other brand and the peanut butter you bought is being sold to the competing comp peanut butter brands to advertise to you. And that is your user data. So now every supermarket is going to have to notify you that they are collecting and selling your user data. Well, okay, fine. By the way, lots of companies are doing this. Cal could probably tell you the ways in which Best Buy is collecting different user data, but I don't. I, in the in the way that this is worded, the New York City's new it says biometrics, so that seems to imply face, fingerprint, maybe voice. Biometrics privacy law to take take effect, barring businesses from selling customer data, which is what supermarkets do. They're selling your customer data, although it's not really biometric, although super, the really new supermarkets do have biometric data. They are recording your face from the cameras everywhere, and uh, they are using that data, although they might not be selling it. But it says, um, barring businesses from selling customer data and requiring posted notices at their doors about the data collection, a new biometric privacy ordinance has taken effect across New York City, putting new limits on what businesses can do with the biometric data they collect on their customers from Friday, which was a couple days ago. Businesses that collect biometric information, most commonly in the form of facial recognition and fingerprints, are required to conspicuously post notices and signs to customers at their doors explaining how their data will be collected. The hey, Tyler, can I, can I inject here? Because yeah. I used to, when I was younger worked for the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs okay. that actually used to enforce those specific laws about signage for consumers. Yes. So you're actually right. We actually have in New York City, even though I haven't worked in New York City uh, government in this field for a couple of decades, I will tell you that they actually did have rules that, uh, regarding the fonts, regarding how the sign has to look. And one of the reasons wasn't just to help the consumer was because it was it was a way of raising money because if the sign was technically wrong or the sign wasn't there, they get a fine. Right. So the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs is one of the few self-funding agencies in New York City, meaning it makes more money from fines than it costs to have all the employees. So I'll, I'll just leave you. Yeah, it's like with the, that new, the new parking meter. Yeah. The, yeah. 
it's it's kind of a, a separate one on on this title that I saw, which was in in, in my hum, humble opinion the most evil one that I have ever seen, and I think you might have seen it, and I posted it, but a whole bunch of other people saw it. I don't know if you saw it, which which is ten cent to using facial recognition for bedtime for children. Yes, that's the video games one. Let's hold that thought. That's a great one. It says here in the article that businesses can face stiff penalties for violating the law, but can escape fines if they fix the violation quickly, exactly to Ken's point, which is this is really about New York. This this agency found a new way to in, kind of add a, additional, a new revenue stream, essentially. Um, businesses face stiff penalties and the law is by no means perfect as none of these laws ever are for one it doesn't apply to government agencies including the police of the businesses that the ordinance does cover it exempts employees of those businesses such as those required to clock in and out with a fingerprint and the definition of what counts as biometric will likely face challenges that could expand or narrow what is covered and I think it's not a coincidence that New York is the first to do this because it's based. Uh, uh, oh, here's a quote. A false facial recognition match could mean having the NYPD called on you just for walking into a Rite Aid or Target, he told TechCrunch. He also said that New York should go further by outlawing systems like facial recognition altogether, as some cities have done. Uh, Albert Kahn, Albert Fox Kahn, the executive director of New York's Surveillance Technology Oversight Project said that the law is an important step to learn how New Yorkers are tracked by local businesses. Interesting. But to your point for us, go ahead, Ken. Tyler, to tie this back to something else you mentioned, seriously, about horses, it ties back. The New York City Department of Consumer Affairs, the same department that will have jurisdiction over these signs. When I was still there in the 1980s, we still had rules about how you had to tie up your horse on the post. You know, even though no one had horses anymore. And we finally got rid of the the rules on how you had to tie up your horses in the 1980s. But we still also had rules governing the transportation of horse manure in New York City. I think that's still on the books, by the way. So, yep. So uh, Faraz brought up a great point of a headline we had um, a few days ago that Tencent, which is um, one of the big tech giants in China, um, and also one of the biggest investors in video games globally is has now because of their uh, and they dominate video games within China. So and they have dozens of titles, uh, including all the most popular titles. Are those video games allowed to be downloaded in the United States, Tyler? Yes, many of them are. OK, so well, and they're also so invested in not, many, they're, they're also in, a key investor in many of the biggest video games. They're also a big investor in Spotify. They're they're a massive investor in tech globally, which, which means data, data from the, that, those video games is not hosted in the United States. It's hosted in, in China somewhere. Safe to, safe to assume. Yeah. And which means that the United States legislation does not have control on where that data is managed and hence they cannot stop. Yeah, but let, let, let's focus there. on your main point, which is a great point, which is sure. China's now requiring the users of their video games to, uh, and there's a new agree to button when you now have the newest versions of these games that says that the app is able to scan, uh, use facial recognition, even on minors, because they're what they're aiming to do is reduce video game usage by minors after 9 p.m. so that you're not playing video games into, into the night because 
that's not uh, productive to society. So um, the state has now required, uh, the ten- by the way, what's interesting about this is, is who's who actually cares if you're playing the video game or not tencent would love you to play the video game all throughout the night i mean that's kind of core to their business china uh the state doesn't want its citizens playing video games all throughout the night so who's actually driving the ship here enforcing you know this new facial recognition which is going to stop people i think it was people under the age of 16 from playing games past 9 p.m., if I remember correctly, because it was four or five days ago that we read the headline. But it's, yeah, facial recognition being used as a policing tactic to change social behaviors in a really interesting way. I think Faraz didn't know he has a hot mic. Faraz, you are dragging your feet while walking. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that, that article is a super, super, super interesting because... You, we're, we might not be far off. I, again, China's really fascinating to watch because they tend to do things first because they can do it very quickly. And other countries are likely to, just like when we look at how China dealt with the social media apps and now other countries are just starting to do the same years later when China's doing this, it might not be that far off that other countries are going to say, hey, uh, we want to be able to... Um, you know, we don't want people do, using these apps in these ways. And because data might show, and this is where it's going to get really wild. And people can come up with all kinds of interesting scenarios. By the way, somewhat related, Pinterest is, has an, is in the news, one of the top 10 stories today. Pinterest wants in on the creator economy. Oh, really? What a surprise. I am so shocked. Another social app trying to monetize through e-commerce. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I wanted the cash register. So that the actual headline is Pinterest wants in on the creator economy. But whoever could have predicted this? Can it do it in the Pinterest way? Fewer likes and dance trends, more cookie baking and outfit inspirations, and ideally a much nicer place to be. And here... Here it is. It says uh, most of Pinterest's best-known creators didn't start using Pinterest as creators. In fact, most of them started using the platform well before the phrase Pinterest creator was even a thing. They simply did what everyone else did, pin stuff that they like and create boards and use platforms, etc. And um, in recent years, though, Pinterest, as Pinterest grew, it began to want to be to bring more of the content on the platform itself. And meanwhile, the creator economy is booming on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and practically every other entertainment and social company are looking for ways to help creators build audiences and businesses on their platforms. Pinterest has always seen itself as something different from those apps, though, and so has largely stayed out of the fray. But then Pinterest noted noticed something changing. When we had talked to users of Pinterest, we'd say, what's the most inspiring thing to you? The company's product chief said uh, they'd reply with a person. My mom is really inspiring. This public figure is inspiring. While there were plenty of ideas all over Pinterest, there were no people behind them. In the time when authentic human connection is everything, too many Pinterest searches felt like faceless catalogs. So over the years, Pinterest has dived headfirst into the world of creators. It introduced a feature called Story Pins, which allows users to make Pinterest native stories. 
blah, 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 and all the company is hoping it can help you usher in a new generation of Pinterest users or pinners, as the company calls them, who do much more than save pictures and recipes, but as usual, um, it's hoping to build a creator economy in a slightly different way. The secret magic of Pinterest is being able to inspire people to take action. For creators, that meant thinking slightly differently uh, about what they share. And my God, this journalist is really stretching, hiding the the juicy bit of this article. Um, But needless to say, Pinterest is, as I said, (laughs) um, wants to monetize because if they don't, and this is the big takeaway, is there's now a big competition between all of the social apps, including Pinterest, where creators are going to spend their time wherever they're able to monetize most. That's the hot new crazy competition that will is just, just, just beginning now. And it will be YouTube versus TikTok versus Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest. And Pinterest needs to get in this game or people are not going to be spending as much time in Pinterest as they used to because the, the as the apps e-commerceify, the uncommercified apps are going to become uh, creative wastelands, essentially. Uh, Tyler, this yeah. is Michelle speaking. Hey, Michelle. I was just going to add that I'm actually pretty surprised that Pinterest wasn't the first mover in that space because it's such a shoppable yeah. interface. Yeah. So I, it's quite interesting that they're finally making that move. Yeah. Um, it'll be, yeah. I'm curious to see what's the strategy been internally for them not to have an even been pioneer because they're yeah i mean they could have gone into shopping even a couple of years ago so yep. i wonder if the existence of etsy put them off because it's it's that's kind of what it would look like wouldn't it if pinterest went into that space well you could find all kinds of pinterest is based off of you find lots of beautiful things and you essentially make a twitter feed of images of things that you think other people will find interesting you're making boards of um pinned boards of content primer yes when it comes to pinterest the unique part about what you just said about that big big juicy sales that could come from pinterest yeah. oh my god every so many women i know will use pinterest to prepare what they want to buy like let's say they're redoing a room or they're re- maybe they're redoing a bathroom or maybe they're doing a christening or a wedding and they're going to look for boards that align with some sort of like a concept board of what they're looking for and products right. and all that other stuff. Can you imagine the money that could be made in Huge. Pinterest because it makes it Huge. easier for me to just buy from the board? Huge. Oh my God, that's brilliant. It's I think that would take, I think it's game changing for the whole um, social commerce because you not only have like women, but you have interior designers, you have contractors, you have, you know, office decorators, you know, you have a lot of different people that go into Pinterest, just normal day to day, they want to do their gardens, you know, so there's... Yeah, that's pretty much what I was saying that I am actually very surprised they haven't made because people go there with a high shoppable intent and they search what they're looking for. And they're usually kind of ready to to buy. So, I mean, I'm glad that they're finally making that move. I'm very excited that they are because that makes it easier to shop in some ways, Michelle, because I'm also surprised they didn't move on to this sooner. But I don't think that they were they were looking at it because they are a bit of like, you know, you, you do mood boards and you do concept boards. But I think as, as someone that works in creative or has done a studio design, it's very easy to make it available to them to access those vendors 
so that they don't have to go searching for them because that was my biggest complaint was is that every time I went to make my boards, it was hard to find where I could buy that specific product. Right. And it made me disappointed when I couldn't find it. So to Michelle's point, I'm I'm grateful that they're doing it because I think they're gonna they're gonna surprise everyone. Yeah, and I just don't know who they believe their core user to be. So I've not used it. I've known of people who have, but my perception is that their core customer were scrapbookers. You know, these women that would go and spend, you know, $100 or $200 at Michael's to make a scrapboard photo album. And and so I I just would be really curious to talk with some people um, within Pinterest to get an understanding of who their core user, they were probably thinking more so of users rather than customers, because it is a no brainer, you know, as I mentioned to both you and Michelle, but I, I just don't think that they considered you know, the full, you know, possibilities, the full range Lakeisha, of possibilities. That's super fascinating that you said that because there's one, three, three initial word that comes up when you were just saying what you said. It's the DIYers and the DIYers yeah. are in Pinterest a lot. They're the people that want to say, cut out the middleman generically because they want to do the stuff themselves. And if you imagine someone being able to do something themselves, it would actually allow them to just cut, you know, do their plan, get it done and dusted. And they're the DIY folks. They're the people yeah, that and like they would look for that. recipes. I mean, yeah, it, totally. it was just a completely different kind of person. When I've redecorated houses or rooms, I would use house, but, you know, it's certainly not to the same scale, but I could do what Pinterest users do, but they started to sell, but it, it just wasn't a great user interface. But I think that the people at House were really starting to think of their users as potential customers um, yeah. through some, some form of commerce. Hey, hey Tyler, yep. this is Jay. Uh, I'm an ex-Pinterest ex- person, so I used to work there. So they actually did have the buy button before they IPO'd. I think it was more, more or less dealing with the merchants, which was the issue. And that's why um, we saw it briefly. And a lot of users, we actually AP tested it. It it worked, but I think it was way ahead of what everyone else was doing. Now, for the target users that people are talking about, it's actually mothers, surprisingly. Uh, Which should actually be surprising because they're mostly stay-at-home mothers, do it DIYs. And um, those are mostly the target users in general that use Pinterest. It's a fundamental shift internally as well that they have to navigate very carefully in in steps and optimize and it takes time and and the pipes themselves are developing and it could be that some of the critical pieces that enable this like image recognition of knowing what you know um in the case of Instagram as Michelle knows Instagram when now when there's an image and somebody's wearing some red you know, Converse All Stars, the it, the algorithm can detect that those are red high top Converse All Stars. But here's other shoes that look very similar to it. That maybe maybe they're not Converse All Stars. Maybe they are Comme de Garcon, you know, uh, version of Converse All Stars that which are Tyler, real, by the way. So you just said a ver- sorry. Yeah. yeah, but you see what you I mean is sometimes there yeah. are shoes that look a lot alike. And you want to act, you're actually very specifically want the Comme de Garcon version of the red high top all-stars, not the uh, OG version of Converse red high top all-stars. And so that's where the algorithm, they do recommend both in the case of Instagram. They're going to say, we think it's this image, this product, but here's four other products that it might be. Please tell us which of these it is. 
And that's based on very ed- the most cutting edge of machine learning algorithms, which Pinterest, that, that is difficult uh, team. You have to develop internally to enable that or find some service that allows you to uh, add those APIs to your app. Amy? Tyler, there is an app that I've seen because, you know, I've obviously been someone on TikTok. There is an app called ClipDrop. There are some fashion apps and, and clothing apps that will take a photo and actually pull the photo in, like, you know, using AI, using technology to take a photo of something you like. And then it allows it to sort of clear it up. And I believe you could do a reverse image search or an image search on Google to find the actual product, which is really fascinating because it means if I like your sneakers, I could take a picture of your sneakers. It'll take out the background. And then from there, it'll allow me to clean, use the photo as a reverse image search in Google and actually locate where that product would be. And I think that technology is going to come forward a little bit more I think it's going to become faster to develop that technology because it's going to make it easier for the consumer to locate a product anywhere, anytime. And that from a one point of inventory perspective, that makes it very easy to appeal to the customer that wants to come to Garçon sneakers and doesn't want to sort of have to like worry about finding where they are, but they could just take a picture of them. And then by the grace of God of the universe and the internet and the whole AI, they will be able to be tracked where that shoe is and where they could purchase it from. Okay. I think the okay. opportunity here, um, if I can just quickly add to that, is bringing it to where you already have billions of human beings. I guess the opportunity is not the tech ability to create such um, such feature, you know, So, because those users are already in those platforms and you don't need to leave the app to go search it elsewhere and so on. So I wanted Jay, to- I just want to thank you um, just for that insight, because mm-hmm. as I listened to you and you spoke to the mothers, to stay-at-home moms being the target customer, I think of the U.S. retailer Target, who have cornered, you know, the stay-at-home mom that are really the female consumer in general, who might go to buy a roll of paper towels, and then she walks out with $150 worth of things that she didn't realize that she needed. So, I, I mean, I think that the potential is huge, and it'd just be really interesting to see what happens um, with Pinterest in this new space. Yeah, let's just say they just made a lot of poor decisions. And what Ami actually mentioned, we actually had that technology when I was there in 2016 of actually taking a photo and just actually buying like what you search off a photo. But like I said, there are a lot of merchant issues. It was way ahead of its time. And it's unfortunate to see what's happening. (laughs) So there's a new AI update within the voice uh, AI um, space. I'm going to play it for you. And it says uh, the comp- a voice AI voice actors sound more human than ever, like Siri, like Google Assistant, like Alexa. Uh, but there's other startups that are even making further advancements than them. A new wave of startups are using deep learning to build synthetic voice actors for digital assistance, video game characters, corporate videos, maybe even Clubhouse. So listen to this audio of this uh, new voice at MIT Technology Review, covering the field's cutting-edge research and its impacts on society. She writes a weekly newsletter called The Algorithm, which was named one of the best newsletters on the internet in 2019 by the Webby Awards. Her work has also won a front-page award and been shortlisted for the Sigma and Ambies Awards. Prior to joining the publication, she was a tech reporter and data scientist at Quartz. Holy shit. 
<laughs> it's getting really good. He sounds he sounds really real, but very fake. Like I wouldn't want to have a beer with him, like I want to have with you, Tyler. Okay. <laughs> I really thought it was Johan. I was looking for Johan. Yeah, Johan does sound like a robot. Uh, Johan, any comments? Oh, th- about thank that? you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Tyler, you should mention the significant union issues that were already mentioned in this article, because I even I just glanced at it. I already knew because I've been in Hollywood, you know, and know so many people there. Yeah. But this is going to be a big issue with voiceover actors. A lot of people who make a living off this. Yeah, it says the company's blog post. And by the way, they have a SoundCloud account. I'm going to tweet out right now the link to the article, which includes a link to their SoundCloud account where they've got multiple recordings of their voices. I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. You can see in my photo the letters TNATW. It says the company blog post drips with the enthusiasm of a 90s U.S. infomercial. It's called Well Said Labs. Describes what clients can expect from its eight new digital voice actors. Uh, Tobin is energetic and insightful. Paige is poised and expressive. Ava is polished, self-assured, and professional. Each one is based on a real voice actor whose likeness with consent has been preserved using AI. So essentially they can take a person's voice and synthesize it so it can say anything. So you can give it a text script and now that human voice based synthesized voice, which by the way, this is how synthesizers do violins as well as they record a little bit of a violin and then they extrapolate all of the different notes on a keyboard to represent that violin this is a similar thing but they're doing it with voice and words (laughs) so each uh, voice is based on a real voice and companies can now license these voices to say whatever they need they simply feed some text into the voice engine and out will spool a crisp audio clip of natural sounding performance well labs a seattle-based startup that spun out of a research nonprofit, allen institute of ai is the latest firm offering AI voices to clients for now. It specializes in voices for corporate e-learning videos. Other startups make voices for digital assistants, call center operators, even video game characters. And uh, get ready for the deep fakes because you can use pre-recorded audio of a celebrity from a movie or a podcast or whatever to make one of these voice actors. And once you have enough audio, and it doesn't take a lot, uh, I could clone Cal or anybody else. It would be very interesting. And, you know, the the progress that's being made on this is being made on a weekly or monthly basis. Within a few years, the deep fakes are going to get very hard to detect indeed, especially if you're doing, you know, Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, or you pick any actor or celebrity of any kind, uh, Obama, Trump, or what have you. It's going to get very dystopian very quickly. And they're kind of doing this with the kids. Like um, if you sign up for Nickelodeon's birthday club, Paw Patrol will call you on your birthday with a personalized message. Can you imagine if you're part of Taylor Swift's fan club and she not only calls you but says, hey, how did those shoes that you ordered off of the social commerce app fit last time? (laughs) Because your parents put in that script. Yeah. By the way, I did a startup back in 2006-ish of Santa calling people, and it was actual real people calling. You know, you it was you could have Santa call your kid at a preset time, and it was um, 
God, what was the name of that startup? But we branched off into other things. And um, it was, it works, you know, it's really interesting. But now you could fully automate that and the parents could write Santa's script. And uh, I might have to do that this Christmas again with a, with a, a new, a new form of Santa. Anyway, really interesting. Santa's safe because nobody owns Santa's likeness. That's the beautiful part about doing Santa. It's just quickly on yeah. this, it's worth stating that it doesn't have to be a company. So we're talking about deep fakes, for instance, and yeah. the legal um, ramifications that have kind of come from that. But it doesn't even have to be a company that's designing an app to deep fake people. As in, it could, when we get to the point where we have really, really good apps or, or sort of um, algorithms that you can say, okay, give, I, need, I need a voice. I want it to be American. Now make it deeper. Now make it. Now make the sort of the pronunciation harder, et cetera, et cetera, in a really nice intuitive UI where you can just build your own voice and your own character. So it's not designed to, it, it's not designed to deepfake, but it just gives all the tools to a user in an easy sort of to use interface. And then that user can happenstance, you know, keep hitting the, 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 the randomized button and end up with Taylor Swift accidentally or can sit there and tweak it until it sounds like Taylor Swift. So the company's not doing it then. And we've already had this problem in video gaming where you've got character creation systems, for instance, that have been so comprehensive that you can make Marvel characters and Disney characters and then they become really, really popular and the, the news picks up on it and whatnot and the companies find out and they're like, hey, hold on a minute. You might not be building Marvel characters, but you're putting all the stuff in there so your users can build Marvel characters. This ain't fair. You've got to cut that out. So I think we're going to sort of we're going to see that a little bit as these mm -hmm. tools become more available to the average. We user. saw we had a headline recently, two three weeks ago, of a voice actor that had been sampled from a video game because the in video games today, once the video game ends, the fans of the video game continue to make additional levels of the game for the other users. This is a very common aspect of video games. And so somebody made a very realistic extra level of the game by taking the voices from the original part of the game and knew how to extract the voices and use those voice synthesizers to create additional levels with entirely new scripts, but with the same voice. And so the voice actor who did the original scenes was like, hey, you didn't call me or pay me to make additional scenes of this video game. And he's like, yeah, I didn't need to. I just synthesized your voice. So it gets very interesting uh, very quickly. It's already happening. Yeah? Um, so I want to just run through, because we have four minutes remaining here, the best uh, tweets that I found recently. Although, my God, thank you to everyone who sent in a hun hundreds and hundreds of tweets since we met 24 hours ago. Um, there's a recycling app that uses AI to identify trash. And then the new app will use AI to help Australians work out if their rubbish can be recycled. Uh, it's called RecycleMate. It's designed uh, to help people become uh, better re recyclers. And then Cal had one just recently about Biden is also backing Trump's rejection of China's South China Sea claims. And along with the rest of the world, it should be said. Um, the Biden administration on Sunday upheld Trump era rejection of nearly all of China's sufficient maritime claims in the South China Sea. That's a huge, 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 huge issue. And likely if any of, of the top 10 things of the top three things that could trigger uh, the next world war, that's certainly high, very high on the list. And a uh, software firm on board lands $100 million from 
uh, for, to create a virtual board company, essentially. Uh, Indianapolis-based Onboard operates a board management platform used by more than 12,000 boards, announced Wednesday it had secured $100 million um, focused on cloud software to enable companies to be governed and have their boards remotely. And this is an important reason I mentioned this very boring startup is because it's actually a very important link in the chain of everyone becoming um, untethered geographically. It's because it's one of the last pieces where boards still feel the need to fly together to have their board meetings. And, and that's one of the frictions of companies becoming truly international and decentralized. And so this $100 million for this company called Onboard is, is really quite interesting. Um, as the article says, uh, boards do some of the most important work. They're leading the organizations. This will allow us to think holistically about continuing to invest in boards and creating an experience that allows them to do their best work remotely, which is true. And this is fantastic. And it's, uh, it's an important uh, piece of the puzzle. Uh, Taiwan Foxcom TSMC Inc., a $350 million deal for COVID vaccines, which is great. I'll, I'll leave that enough said there. Um, Tyler, Tyler, yes. this is the biggest news, seriously. Uh -huh. Okay, so just pay attention okay. to it. Okay. Taiwan government has tried for months to buy the vaccine directly from bio and tech yep. and has blamed China for it. So Correct. we've been discussing that particular topic That's for right. ages. Now, look at it from the different perspective that, you know, Foxcom and TSMCC has actually gone and closed the deal. Oh, now, look thank at you from... for helping me so, figure that out. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a big, big news that, you know, the political government couldn't actually do it. That's but here so we go. Funny. The tech giants have got the leverage oh, that's to funny. go and do it. You're right. So what it's just so can, can, I, can I just re remind everyone, actually, the, the, the chairman of Foxconn did try to run for Taiwanese presidency before. Funny. Unsuccessfully. That's funny. Yeah, that's really funny because the, the there's an agreement that the vaccine companies make uh, that are geographically specific, which says, uh, you know, the, in this country, uh, they have exclusive on on buying it and whatever, but it's, it's related to countries and governments. And so a private third party could make a purchase. It's really interesting. Uh, kind of a hack, kind of a workaround. Anyway, um, thank you for the, the insight on that. Um, who is this writing this one? Financial Times has a headline that Chinese investors miss out on a record year for Indian tech fundraising. From Financial Times, Indian startups raised a record $7.2 across 336 funding rounds in the quarter ending June, according to data provider Traxon. And high-tech toilets could spread antibiotic-resistant superbugs in hospitals, Japanese study says, coming from Heyman. Yeah, what is it with Heyman and toilet articles? Something is stinky with Heyman and all of his Do you, so, toilet so articles. Can I give a li the littlest backstory here? Yeah. Um, I've hung out with Heyman like late night and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of like the different toilets, which ones uh, are high-end, which ones are luxury. So you're on to something, Tyler. I'm not. There's some. Is he not here? L ladies and gentlemen, let's figure out what's going on with Heyman and toilets. It's it's 4 a.m. in Toronto, so hopefully he's sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> the I'm actually going to create a room on that sometime when he's awake. That the title <laughs> of the room? We can all discuss this. What's up with Heyman I, I don't know toilets. the title yet, yes. but I, anybody have a suggestion, just DM me. Yeah. 
and we'll just set up a room. We'll just get Heyman in there. So it's time time we set up a maybe maybe an MBA one. We study this phenomena. Yeah. Maybe we like uh, yeah. This is deep. Maybe the MBA of poop. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Why? Why Biden's uh, uh, Forbes has an article. The headline is why Biden's war on big tech is misguided. It's a very long read. So I'll let you read it from the Tech News Twitter account. Reuters has reported that Dubai's ruler launches big tech companies, a national program for coders, which they should do. That is fantastic. That's what they need because there is a a recipe to build a vibrant tech ecosystem. And one of the key ingredients in a recipe of having a strong startup ecosystem is people who can code and build apps. And you need developers, 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 as our friend Jeff uh, uh, from Microsoft uh, uh, used to say. So Dubai understands it needs coders because I've told Dubai in 2013 they need coders if they want to be a serious tech ecosystem. And so I'm very happy to see this article that Dubai's ruler is launching um, this initiative to build more national a program for coders. That's what they need, indeed. Uh, Overseas, uh, China wants to build an 8,000-mile underwater train. China currently has one of the most expansive and impressive high-speed rail networks on Earth. And this article that I'm just retweeting now says uh, China wants to build an underwater link to the U.S. Fantastic. A 13,000-kilometer, 8,000-mile train that travels from mainland China up through Siberia and eastern Russia, under the sea, through the Bering Strait, into Alaska, across the rocky peaks of Canada's Yukon, into the USA. Once constructed, they ha- they have could further extend the international bullet train into every corner of the US. The price of such outlandish, outlandish proposal is a cool $200 billion. And the plans emerged in 2014. And you can read all about it because we're short on time. So I'm just going to keep chugging along. No pun intended. And the next one is that... Um, Ah, there's a big article from Wired highlighting how Chinese politicians use Twitter in a very kind of aggressive way, which they state is intended for their home audience. Because once they say something very loudly and proudly on Twitter, it's then screenshotted and quickly shared internally in China where their local folks uh, are very happy to see how their politicians are standing up to um and you know who they perceive as political foes of some kind it's a really interesting article it's become one of the biggest articles of the week on on uh, shared on twitter tech firms to buy covid-19 vaccines on behalf of taiwan's government we covered that one heyman sent in that one as well and with 17,000 locations dollar general i didn't realize they had 17,000 locations that's a lot of locations could help rural America where they're located um, and low-income communities get vaccinated. In fact, distributing vaccines through Dollar General was something the U.S. Center for Disease Control considered as well, and now Bloomberg is talking about it. And more, it highlights the point that brick and mortar will likely become play a significant role in distribution of all kinds of things in addition to vaccines. So Amazon 
would do a deal with uh, Dollar General to be now have 17,000 pick up and drop off and return locations. You get the idea. Uh, or clinics or what have you. So physical locations um, will, will end up being useful in some sense. All in one doctor startup, Coda re reaches $1.4 billion valuation in, in India and um, medtech in India is booming. Yeah, no doubt. Makes perfect sense. Virtual reality headset maker Oculus announces new ways to make VR more inclusive in a new software update that um, with V30, we're adding some long-awaited features, including microphone swapping, a more powerful multitasking experience for people who love to use every inch of their digital space, etc. And it's an even bigger update for owners of the original Quest who can enable AirLink. And the marquee ch change in this update is the inclusion of a new accessibility tab in the Oculus settings. This is where users can perform such actions as changing the default text size. So it's old geezers who need glasses can now use uh, VR and actually read the text by you know, increasing the default text size. Oculus has added two features, color correction and raise view, etc. So um, yeah, now uh, more people can enjoy the VR experience. And there's a headline that I'm retweeting right now. Can advertising scale in VR? And this is a huge, huge question. And the answer is yes, because there's <laughs> billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to be made of bringing advertising into VR and e-commerce into VR. And that's why you know that you don't even need to think about it too hard. Indeed, uh, e-commerce and advertising will come into VR because... Uh, there's way too many billions of dollars at stake. <clears throat> and Apple's VR headset might prevent crashing into furniture is a headline as well that I'm sharing right now from the Twitter account. And you have to click on it to see it, how they will help you prevent yourself from crashing into all the furniture in your own house. And I will pause there and save the uh, all of the other 500 fantastic articles that people tweeted in even while we met here and didn't have a chance to cover because, as I said, I have a hard headline that I'm now seven minutes over. So I'll have to bid you all adieu until we meet again in six hours. But thank you to thank you. everybody thank for you, joining everyone. us thank yet you. again. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Rob. See you in six hours. Have a great day. Bye. See you, everybody. Bye.